Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guest for the episode is Claudia Heilbrunn. Claudia is a licensed psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. She received her BA from Columbia University, her MA from the University of Pennsylvania, and her analytic training from the Institute of Psychoanalytic Training and Research. Claudia is also the owner of Claudia Inc. Tutoring, a company devoted to helping students of all aptitudes improve their writing and reading comprehension skills. She joins us today to talk about her book, What Happens When the Analyst Dies, Unexpected Terminations in Psychoanalysis, published 2020 by Rutledge. Claudia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm... I've wanted to have you since the book came out. Um, I think it's a very, very important topic. Um, what motivated you to write the book? You know, there were so many motivations. Um, the primary motivation happened well over a decade before I actually wrote the book or put together the book, since there's so many contributors to it. Um, I was in a long-term psychoanalytic treatment Um, and my analyst got sick and died. And she was actually my second analyst to die. Uh, The first one uh, that happened in about 1992, I was uh, in my 20s, and it was a pretty traumatizing death because I didn't know he was ill. uh, And it was a, it, it was, it was, and I was in a stage of development where it was, really um, catastrophic for me. And then the second analyst died and I was left again in this, you know, what I call this world of kind of complete isolation and, uh, you know, dead analyst mode uh, where nobody knew the person who had died. Nobody that I knew because I wasn't in training. I wasn't in the field. I was just a patient. Uh, So nobody I knew was in analysis. They had no idea what this person, whom I loved so much, I had seen her for 12 years, uh, four times a week. Um, And uh, 
was very dependent on. Um, so no, nobody could understand just how grief stricken I was. And so at that time, I really worked to find anything I could read about it. And, you know, I didn't have access to something like PepWeb. Uh, so I couldn't find anything. There were no articles that I could locate. And I thought, I can't be the only one. I mean, other people have therapists who die. And so I decided to put together a book. Um, and I didn't have access to people in the field, of course. So I put advertisements on Craigslist um, looking for anybody who you know, could write about the topic and I got no responses and I just put it to rest. <clears throat> and then a few years later, I decided to pursue analytic training at IPTAR. And six years into my training, my training analyst died. So that was my third uh, analyst to die while I was in treatment. Um, and I was in a very different place, um, but I still could recognize as a candidate Ali, I can't even say it, Ali Zand, uh, you know, how much really goes wrong when analysts get ill and die. Um, and so I decided at that point to move forward with the project I put to rest all those years ago. And it was easier because I had more access to people and um, just resources. Uh, and so it really was spurred out of my own experience. And then, of course, you know, I had a, a real mission at that point, which was um, I thought that the analytic, communi analytic community really wasn't paying attention to the issue enough that it, you know, people died and there was kind of horror at what may have happened, but then it went underground again. And I hoped that putting together a book in which patients' voices were highlighted, uh, that the analytic community would really be equipped with real knowledge of what patients experience, how truly catastrophic and excruciating it is for patients, especially those, you know, at a particular stages of development or psychic, you know, having particular psychic health. Um, so that when the community and when analysts themselves really heard the voices of patients, that they would take action and do more uh, and, you know, take it more seriously. And also so that institutes would do more to safeguard not only the patients, but also the analysts who are clearly struggling um, with their own illness and death and, you know, hopefully change training to include more on the subject so people could be better prepared uh, to deal with it. So I guess those were my two reasons. <laughs> and have you, have you seen that at an institute? Has, has there been... Um... I think the the term is the psychoanalyst assistance committee. Has anything uh, happened either at your institute well, or are others? You know, IPTAR had it, and the last chapter in the book, Nancy Einbinders talks about her putting together that group uh, at IPTAR, but it was really underutilized. I actually don't know if it's used more. I know that, and I don't know many institutes. I know IPTAR that the clinic at IPTAR now requires things like analytic wills. So I think those are becoming more common where if you're a candidate working at the clinic, you need to have an analytic will, you need to designate someone to be the person who you know helps your patients if you should die. So I thought that was a, you know, that's a 
basic step in the right direction. Um, I don't, I, I wish I could say more. I actually don't know what other institutes are doing. Uh, it, you know, COVID help happened shortly afterwards and everything kind of <laughs> shifts after the book came out. So I don't, I don't know that this was primary even. Interestingly enough, death has been so um, big in our culture. So I don't, I don't, you know, it's, I don't, I don't know if this is what they've been dealing with since there've been so many other big things happening lately. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you had the, your, your two analysts and your training analysts, three analysts died. The, the subtitle of the book is unexpected terminations and psychoanalysis. You said the first analyst was unexpected. Were the other two uh, planned and or expected? Were all, were all three unexpected? They were all different. I mean, my first analyst was in complete denial. Um, and so he, uh, he, I don't, he, I don't think he thought he was going to die on his deathbed. I mean, he was a, he was a character onto himself. So I think he was in a different category of analyst because um, his denial was so deep. It was the AIDS epidemic. He really thought AIDS was something that wouldn't kill him. That was psychological. So there's a lot in that. Um, my second analyst um, got sick six years into my treatment. Uh, she had breast cancer and um, also, I think, had a kidney removed. And then, not a kidney, a liver. Wait, I can't remember now. Um, and then um, she got ill again, I guess, in the last year of my treatment. But again, she knew about her illness, but didn't plan on closing her practice, um, didn't take steps to tell her patient. She told me because I made her promise to tell me if she got sick when I began the analysis, but she didn't tell any of her other patients until the last like week that she was working. Uh, and I only know that because by the end of that treatment, she was telling me a lot. So the treatment had changed. And then my third analyst, um, I, I noticed that he was sick. Um, he got a, you know, a diagnosis that was incorrect from his doctors. Uh, and he was in treatment for lung cancer. Uh, but again, I think he really thought he could beat it. Uh, he never closed his practice either. There were a lot of canceled sessions at the end. Um, and then we were supposed to come back after the summer break and he, you know, he canceled and then he said tomorrow and then he canceled. And then in the end, I say goodbye on the phone because he just wasn't well enough. I think that, you know, especially with modern medicine, there's so many hopeful miracle cures um, to things like cancer that people don't give up hope of beating it. Um, and so you're faced with analysts own denial and the, you know, sm slim chance that maybe someone will. So, um, yeah. And my first two analysts, nobody told me that they died. So my first one just was, I think, irresponsible. He didn't do anything. The second one, I think things must have fallen, you know, through the cracks that I wasn't called. It just so happened that I met someone who knew her who on the day of her funeral and didn't know why I wasn't at the funeral. And so I rushed to the funeral so I could go to that. And then the third analyst, I was part of the community. So 
he handled it much, he handled it very well, got a phone call and um, went to the memorial. But uh, I don't think any of them were planned or nothing was, there was no termination process or anything. Yeah, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm someone who's lost two analysts and the, the, the funeral thing is very interesting because when the first one died, it was, he was in denial, deep denial. Um, and so was I as a patient. That's where I was in the, you know, full transference neuroses. And that I learned he had died when someone called me, another patient who somehow, I don't know how she found out. I guess she called for a session because he, he died in between sessions for me. So I wouldn't have known. And what I was aware, she called me, she said, you know, uh, Jim, you know, they had the funeral today. And one of the things I was like, oh, I, I wasn't invited to the funeral. I wasn't. And it was that thing with, oh, shit, I'm not family. I mean, it was a deep, uh, not a narcissistic wound, but that real wake up call. And I'm going to use the word just because I know that's not right. Oh, wait, I'm just a patient. I'm not family. I, I, um, that's, it's, I, first, I'm so sorry you lost two analysts. It's, it's, it's really hard. Um, but I think that that was a theme like throughout the book um, with the different contributors, how even if they went to the funeral and were, you know, quote, invited, um, that it's so evident that you are alone, you are not the family, you can't really participate in any morning rituals. There's no one to share your loss, to laugh or cry with. Um, it's a completely private grief process, which makes it in some ways more challenging to hold on to the person because you have to do it by yourself, which isn't typically how we grieve loved ones. Well, but that's right. And I think that that's also the other thing I experienced is that the absolute isolation, because if you're not in an analytic community, if you say in the world, my father died, my mother died, everybody in a sense knows what that means. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, time off from work. People sort of, you can share that widely and now you can put it on Facebook. I mean, you can, you can, uh, it's, it's sort of, globally understood what these deaths are. How do you, my, my therapist died, unless someone knows that experience, it's so isolating. It's, it's very, um, yeah. And so this, this goes to, I think you told me why you wrote this as a book and not a paper. You want, um, if, if a patient who's not in the community loses a therapist to be able to, to find your book. Yeah. Because I couldn't find any material when I, when my analyst, my, first or second analyst died. And, you know, today, if I weren't in the community, I, it's easier just because of there's more access now than there was then, but a book, it will come up if you, it will come up no matter what. And I've tried to make it a name that if you, you know, you Googled <laughs> just a few it's good a, words, you would find it. Um, yes, you have, it's a SEO optimized <laughs> title. Um, but yeah. And, and it's part of the reason you know, the patient stories are highlighted in it because, you know, what you see when you read it is that people, no matter how different the patients are, no matter how different the analysts are, you know, no matter where the person is, everybody really experiences this, you know, similar kind of themes. Uh, if their analyst dies, the isolation being, you know, 
a primary one, feeling invisible, uh, an invisible mourner where nobody else can vaguely understand why you're so upset. Uh, when my first analyst died, you know, he was the most, and part of it was, I mean, truly how, to unable to put into any other words, how screwed up I was at that point. I was young and I was a mess. And he was everything to me, everything, I, you know. So his death was like, I was shattered, you know, and there was nobody who could understand, you know, what on earth, why I would be having such an issue because my therapist died. The only person who can understand is the person who died. Yes. That's yes. what's so, because I had the same experience, shattered, blown apart. Um, I refer to myself as an ambulatory psychotic um, because it was, yeah, I was in the world. The person who I would bring this to is dead. And, and so it's, 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 it's a staggering, staggering loss. And, and you, you, and it was interesting because I also wanted to believe <laughs> my grandiosity that I have had the most staggering loss of all. So reading other patients in your book, I'm like, okay, other people <laughs> <have it> <laughs> well, again, I will concede. Yeah. But it's, I mean, two things. One is, you know, you said this when I spoke to you on the phone, like we don't realize how large we loom in patients' worlds. And also when I read um, Lynn, I think it's Lynn Jacobs' chapter, um, two of us, you know, and they're only, you know, they're like eight patients here who are doing the memoir pieces. Two out of eight mentioned that our inner landscapes were like, Mount St. Helens in the 90s, which, you know, so that's that for me was really interesting mm -hmm. when I saw that she used my metaphor, you know, she used my she visited it. I visited it. And it was like, that is exactly what this feels like. This just utter death and destruction. Yeah. 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 And and so it's interesting not knowing how large we we loom. It's because I think about so the idea of the the analytic will is who's going to contact the patients? Are they invited to the funeral? All these post-mortem directives, which I didn't have. And, and I have that for each of my patients. Um, who's going to call them, who they're super, you know, who's supervising the case um, so that they, that, that can't, in, in, in sense, one of the Author says, you know, or no, you say it, and I think in the epilogue that you know we 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 bear responsibility. Um, we bear great responsibility for our patients, um, and and it's responsible and I think ethical to have this this will. Um, well, also, to, like what happens to all the files? <laughs> like mm -hmm. when my first analyst died, he used to tape record our sessions. Like what happened to those tapes? I, I was I was left haunted by what happened to those tapes. I mean, I'm sure they were thrown away. When my second analyst died, she was supposed to mail me back all of my poetry and creative like writing that I had given her through the years, because I used to write a lot. And she must have forgotten because she was so sick. Like, where'd that all go? And, you know, it's, it's a narcissistic thought. There were so many things that were more important. Maybe those are the things we focus on because they're smaller but i always want like what happened to it was it in a garbage like where's my stuff how do they handle that so things like 
you know, how do you keep your anonymity when once your analyst is dead? Did her like family read it? I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, so it's it's interesting with with patients' voices um, and getting that material. We had an author on the channel two years ago who she's an analyst. She's in her late eighties, but she wrote a book about being. Uh, institutionalized in the late fifties and, and uh, you know, shock therapy and insulin therapy and all this, this stuff and to write. And she kept a journal of what it was like for her at the time. And when she went back to write her book, she got the process notes from, I don't know if it was Bronx psychiatric or wherever she was. So you could, she got her own process notes to read what she was going through and what the analysts were writing. That's Um, so interesting. So you could see them side by side and they're probably very different. They're so different. They're so different. But here's what's interesting with that is that, so she's published, she's an analyst, she's working, you can read her book. And it's about her, you know, trauma and suicide attempt and what she went through. It's, It's a full disclosure of her. And... So her patients can read this and um, it strengthens the work that they know something because in your, uh, in your book, um, there's, uh, you're reviewing the literature on disclosure and what, what do you tell your patients? And, and there was a number of authors who said, you tell them nothing. And one author, I forget who it was, the paper was, 1982. I always sort of place things on when things are written because I think that's where the theory goes. Um, that to disclose serves only the analyst's narcissistic needs to confess and should be withheld. Yes, yes. I think Nancy Einbinder quoted that when she was talking about, you know, through the years she was trying to grapple with this at IPTAR, the different thoughts, on beliefs on it. But they still just they still are keeping it a secret. And that, you know, I think more and more analysts are being more transparent. Um, But I also think that an analyst can only be as transparent as his, her or their psyche allows. Um, And that's that's kind of the kicker, (laughs) you know, the kicker about being an analyst. You can only do as much as your own psyche allows. And when you're facing your own trauma, your own death you know, how well you're going to deal with it with your patients will depend on how much you can grapple with it within yourself. They can't be separated. And I don't think we can trust the analysts alone to be able to do it because we're all human. Like we all will be stopped by our own need for denial or for, you know, I, I, Therese Rosen, um, but says it that, you know, her, she was full of fear and she couldn't deal with her patient's fear because she was too afraid herself. Um, and, you know, I love that about her essay. She's so honest. And I don't think it necessarily she she was ill. She isn't someone who, thank goodness, died. But her experience really shows what someone who's petrified Facing someone that could say facing something that could be life threatening deals with within themselves and then has to take into the analytic room and how they can function trying to cope with both their own feelings and their patients. 
Yeah, and I think that's part of the psychoanalyst assistance committee is assistance for the analyst who is sick. I mean, it's it's a supervision. It's a specific way of, of talking. And what's great about her chapter is she's writes about it from being a sick analyst, but also being an analysand with a dying. I mean, she's her chapter does yeah, both. does both. both. Mm-hmm. It's really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you talked about developmentally where you were in the first treatment and young, and I think it, and we see this, that where, where people are developmentally, I have a friend who the fantasy, she, now this is going back 30 years ago, um, found a therapist uh, who was perfect for her. She's finally, you know, she found the someone who's going to, and, and he died maybe a month into treatment. Um, and so that fantasy analysis, no one has ever been able to, to satisfy. That's the perfect analyst. And he died. Mm-hmm. So she developmentally was very, very early on. And I think about, and she's convinced that that was her one shot at treatment. That was it. And it's, it's over. It'll never happen again. I think about Adam Phillips who writes in missing out that we become experts on the life we don't have as opposed to the one we do have. Mm-hmm. Um, in some of the chapters write about the, well, so let's start with how, we can we know how large we loom like i think about okay which cases do i think all right this is going to be you know devastating chattering really super challenging some cases which i think oh it'll be sad i think that they'll be you know in a sense okay but i'm wondering can we know you know i think (laughs) i think again it you know, there. The, I I have a patient, <laughs> um, and I remember being a little surprised by how much suddenly she seemed to, you know, be attached to me. Like I was like, oh, really? I had no idea. Just in one session, it, it I kind of woke up to it. So then, of course, I had to look at what was going on in me uh, that was preventing me from, you know, feeling that, knowing that, because and then you know, deal with that. I, I mean, I think, I think we should be able to, you know, I think we should be able to know who our patients are and where they are. I think that, you know, the, the patients who really experienced um, the deaths is catastrophic. I think, I mean, I think it depended on a couple things. One was, you know, how the analyst dealt with it. You know, there are two chapters where the analyst dealt with it pretty well. And those two people fared pretty well, um, but they also, I don't think, were, I don't think either of them had severe early attachment issues. I know with my first analyst, I had no semblance of a separate self. I mean, he was so in me. Um, I was not, you know, so when he went, you know, I was blown to smithereens too because, you know, there was no separation. Um, You see it in... You know, one author, um, Lynn Jacobs, who is a dual chapter, you know, felt like um, she was shattered because she felt like, what did, what, what did she say? It was like she was an, she, like an infant in a, like in a, I mean, the metaphors they use, like she felt like a fish stuck in the shallows, like trying to hold on to life and plopping around. You know, one other patient talked about, you know, finally finding a mother who could nurse her only for the mother to die while holding her in her arms. So all of these speak to 
really early attachment issues where the patients haven't yet, you know, felt separate and their, you know, what they've gained in treatment hasn't gelled. And so, you know, when the analyst dies, um, the parts of them that came to life or that they were bringing to life within the analytic room um, die too, because they haven't secured it yet. And I think that's when, I think as analysts, we should know who those patients are. That doesn't seem like a mystery to me, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm deceiving myself. Well, I think, yes, I think we should know. I think, of course, we, we should know. I think my question is, is, I think my question comes out of uh, Andre Green, who, who says we are in a constant dialogue with the unknown. So I think we should, we should know, and I think we should, I would, I allow room to say, I don't know, um, and well, proceed with caution. 100%. I don't, I don't mean no in a kind of arrogant way. I mean, what we see more than anything is that whatever an analyst thinks he, she, or they are doing, um, you never know the impact on the patient until you hear the patient's voice, you know? So I think, I think, of course, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, yes, 100%. I don't think we ever really know because we are not that person. Um, and we can think, I mean, like mine, I, I didn't realize how attached a patient was. Um, and I learned, but we'll, we'll, I don't think we as analysts will ever know truly how um, our deaths will impact patients, which is why we have to create a safety net for them so that other people can help them through it because we're not going to be there and we don't know. Yeah. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I was thinking about that. Um, there's a, a theory somewhere I've picked up. I don't know where it comes from. That the you have the analysis, and then you have once it's over the analysis of the analysis, uh, where you try to look at what what happened. Um, and I'm wondering if. And this was, and I'm I'm asking a question that my answer is yes. Is the death of the analyst, in a sense, the final intervention that the analyst makes? Um, because for me, it it was it, it like I said it it um, it revealed the transference neuroses. It revealed the fantasy relationship. It revealed my own denial of what was going on. Um, he was physically very, very weak, and I didn't see it. 
and I looked right at him a week before and I didn't see it. I can see it now. There's, it was a group conference. So there's photographs from that. So if I look at the picture, I'm like, Oh my God, emaciated. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. Um, so is it, well, for me, it was in a sense necessary to complete the analysis. You, you mean it was necessary for you to process the analysis with yourself or with another person in order to complete it. It was necessary for the, the, the term, which I trying to think, I'm trying to think of something better, but it was in a sense, a maturational intervention. It was the intervention, you know, analysis terminable and interminable. Um, you know, it was as horrible as it is. It was in a sense, something I needed. You mean you needed the death or you needed to process it? And that's what taught you so much. Yeah. yeah, I needed the death. And that's interesting. I I've actually never. I might, mm-hmm. I might have stayed where I was developmentally forever. In fact, what, and this turns out, when you talk about this, this I think turned to his way of working. He was very much interested in, in insulation, the insulation barrier, and he really worked that way. And so now I was a, in training at this point, so I have a whole community. And so when we had a, uh, basically a group get together to talk about him. Um, we all had the exact same emotional experience was, oh my God, I, I didn't realize I'd aged. So I started analysis when I was 26. He passed when I was 43. I still felt 26 because That's he interesting. insulated at that time. But all of his analysis had the same thing, but they hadn't aged. Well, see, I think that speaks to and I don't know your analyst or anything, but it speaks to how a particular analyst's approach and maybe, you know, ways of treatment that aren't necessarily in patients' best interest. And again, I don't know your analyst, how how patients will will do their analyst bidding and how, you know, then there's just kind of an ongoing for lack of a better word, enactment going on. Like my first analyst death, I mean, to be frank, it was the most catastrophic uh, for me, but it was the best thing that happened to me because he was really, uh, an analyst shouldn't use this word, but he was a bit, he was really, well, I'll just say he was destructive and it was a really sick analysis. And I was, it was like being in a cult and if he didn't die, I probably, I don't know if I ever would have gotten out of that. And his death, um, you know, started, uh, I, I'm still not done, you know, several years of understanding, you know, A, who he was, you know, he, I had no idea he was gay and he died of AIDS and he was an AIDS denialist. And, you know, it was quite intense to recognize this over the long haul and also who I was that I could, you know, be a patient who, you know, I was only 14 when I met him. So I was a kid. Um, But, you know, I was fully enmeshed and believed in him and thought he was God. And so his death freed me, Um, you know, and when my second analyst died, it certainly showed me the ways in which we were stuck. Um, I think her illness also threw a monkey wrench into what had been a pretty good analysis, but 
once I, you know, I was a caretaker of ill parents. And so once, you know, these things came in, it became more problematic. Um, I don't know if I would say that about my third analyst, but that might just be because by that time I wasn't willing to be as dependent as I was on my first two. But yeah, no, I think it does beget growth. And, you know, so many, again, contributors to the book, it spurred, uh, you know, a few, it spurred them to become, they were in the field, but it spurred them to become analysts and to do particular kinds of work or to deal with this kind of issue. So it's certainly spurred people forward in interesting ways once they could understand what happened. Oh, it's, it's, it spurred me forward. It really was uh, uh, necessary. You talk about the contributors in the book. So, you know, 10 years prior, you put a thing on Craigslist, you have no takers. When you were at IPTAR and you decided again to, to return to it, um, you, you got a lot of takers. What happened when you reached out? Um, I put a notice on eTalk, just a listserv, um, and I got um, quite a few responses right away. And then people, you know, forwarded it to other listservs. And then I heard from more people. Uh, At first, there were more people who wanted to do like the memoirs. And then some people just couldn't, they just couldn't do it. Um, I think that, you know, so many years later, it's still hard to write about. Um, It was hard for the contributors, some of them to write about. Some of them found it really helpful because they finally could kind of make peace with it. One of the contributors um, uh, wrote her, her, it wasn't even chapters, just wrote, had 60 pages of, this is the double, 60 pages of writing that she did right after her analyst died and hadn't looked at it since. And that's what turned into her chapters. Um, Yeah, and mine, I is, you know, it's edited for just punctuation and stuff, but it's what I wrote, you know, right after my second analyst died before I became an analyst uh, or went into training. Um, So there were a lot of people interested in doing it. And then Nancy Einbinder, she's at IPTAR. She, she right away wanted to write about IPTAR. And then, you know, uh, Jerome Blackman, uh, David Bauscher, they, both had patients and they wanted to write about their patients and being the second analyst. So yeah, it was, it was enough <laughs> to put a book together. Well, it was enough, but also uh, I think, so I, I, I said at the top of the interview that I, when I saw the book was published, I'm like, I want to do this interview. And I was terrified to do it because of how my, my own experience. And so you did a book launch at IPTAR on a Sunday and I'm like, I, I can't go. I wasn't, <laughs> ready. Um, How many years later is it? It was 2008 when your analyst uh, died? Yeah. yeah, my analyst died August 1st, 2008. Yeah, and so it, you, I think it the, speaks to just, I mean, how hard it is. Like, how many years later and it's still overwhelming, right? It's still overwhelming. It still comes into my supervision. Um, yeah, it's, 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 um, it's sort of central to my life and central to how I work as an analyst because of the, I think the mistake of the over-insulation um, developmentally, I'd still, yeah. Um, but you said the reception at IPTAR was outstanding. Oh my goodness. It, it was, I, I was, I mean, I was worried people wouldn't come. There weren't enough seats. It was standing room only. And then 
so many people afterwards came up to me and I even got phone calls, you know, with, with such gratitude for finally speaking about this subject that they weren't able to talk to anybody about. I think that certain analysts must have told their current patients who had been through the experience of losing the analyst about the talk. So patients came um, who never, never heard anybody else talk about it. And what struck me the most was, first of all, how emotional they were, of course, but also how grateful they were because finally something was giving voice to their experience and they could read it and recognize themselves and realize they weren't alone. Like there's a community of mourners that they didn't know about. So it, it was quite moving for me, actually, the, the talk. Um, yeah, yeah, there was standing room only. People were standing in the back. It was shocking. <laughs> I was surprised. Yeah, well, that's what we talked about earlier. It's just the isolation of this very specific loss and how do you do it? And if you're not in the community, you're really, really lost. So this was good. Um, you mentioned, um, I think it was Nancy's chapter, but others on being the second analyst after, um, you know, so a patient comes in having lost their analyst. Um, what was that experience like for them? Um, I think that it, I, th I think it, again, it depended on the patient and where that patient was in his, her, or their development. So, um, like, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Merle uh, Malofsky writes about how so much of what she had to grapple with was both her own experience of mourning, how it's something she had a hard time dealing with. She had lost a friend when she was very young and how she had to come to terms with her own, you know, experience of loss and dealing with it in order to also be there for her patient, Vanessa. Uh, they wrote a chapter together. Um, right, so she you writes get with her and Allison. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, she also speaks about something that I think probably is very common, how you have to deal with that your patient would wish wishes that you were the one who was dead because you're, you're playing second fiddle to an idealized analyst often. And, you know, if you don't feel secure in your technique and in, in your ability and in your insights, that's probably jarring. You know, I think people probably feel competitive um, with the first analyst. I don't think any one says that in the book though. Um, and then in um, David Bauscher's chapter, he really writes about how the first analyst was a third person in the analysis because the patient wanted a duplicate and how he was striving to be that duplicate. So he kind of got pulled into that and how he had to free himself from that and be a different person from the dead analyst um, in order to move forward so that she could give up that because she wasn't able to mourn. But but he too, I think both of Dave, David um, Bauscher and Jerome Blackman speak about you know, a certain competitiveness or being flattered that these people were off, were referred to them because they were referred by colleagues. And so we also see how the second analysts are often, often know the person who died. Um, so that becomes an issue too, dealing with, they're dealing with mourning uh, at the same time as the patient is. I think Merle speaks about that as well. 
the analyst who died was a good friend of hers. So she and her patient, Vanessa, were in mourning. And so Vanessa was afraid of overwhelming her. So she had to, you know, you have to be aware of your countertransference and your own feelings about the analyst so that you can be there for the patient. Um, yeah. And, and I think you really have to be able to hold just such incredible grief. And one, one, one analyst, I think, speaks about how the patient was very angry at the dead analyst and how it was hard for him because the dead analyst was his idealized supervisor. So, you know, something mm. comes up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, and I went, we'll talk about just sort of d- d- denial. Um, so uh, I, my analyst was, was married and his wife was an analyst and they shared a suite. So I went right into treatment, not right. I waited. I wasn't ready. Um, I was not ready, but I, I went into treatment with her maybe two months later and, uh, it was the same couch, the same room. And I'm like, how are we, how, and she just lost her husband. Um, you know, long marriage. I don't know how they were. I don't know how she did it. I don't know how she showed up. Um, but she did, and and we worked together, and then she died. Um, oh my goodness, that must have been yeah. so absolutely bizarre for you. How <laughs> because she was grieving, you were on the yes. same. Ca- I mean, how was that for you? <laughs> I'm turning the interview well, around. How was that for you? <laughs> <laughs> it was so. <laughs> what what was interesting is that you know I go to the office, and and so. Um, I think all in, so their last name was Morel. I talked to a Morel for like 20 plus years. I'd never talked to anybody else, you know, other than supervisors. I mean, I stayed in the family. Um, not a family member, which I realized with her. Um, but she, the office that they shared, she couldn't afford the rent on her own. So she had to close it, the physical space rapidly and so I think she called me and she says, we're going to meet. And, and she was then, you know, renting space at our Institute, these rooms. So then it became very weird because I was on a couch in rooms where I also practiced, but I was so angry at her for not letting me say goodbye to the space. Oh, that was a big thing in my world. <laughs> Go on. I never got to say goodbye to that, that, that office. Um, but that then, um, as, as these things do, it really freed our work together. And I had a different analysis and it was ultimately helpful because I could ask questions about, and this goes to the disclosure piece. I could ask questions about her husband, my analyst, where I could get in a sense, some pieces of reality out of the transference fantasy. And she was very good. She would feed me reality. Um, and it was so, so helpful. So this, okay, the, so I'm now, I am on the side of disclosure. Yes, you take it case by case. But you sent me um, just yesterday an article that uh, Fred Pine um, wrote about how he dealt with um, dying, um, in which his disclosure very recently, um, that um, he decides to, in a sense, bring his patients along, uh, tell them what's happening um, and he says, you know, my first task as I inform patients of the medical reality was to allow patients to leave if they wished 
without feeling guilt that they were abandoning me. And some took him up on that one, you know, one patient says, listen, I've been through this once before. I'm not doing it again. Um, But then he says, and I really love this, the inverse task also right from the start was to enable patients who chose to stay to feel they could still talk about themselves. Almost every one saying that their problems seemed trivial next to mine. In all cases, I made it clear that I was continuing because I wanted to do the work that I do and that that entailed a focus on their lives. Um, I mean, I think that when I read this and how he did it, it that's uh, that's an ideal of how to handle it to say, yeah. okay, let's, let's do this. My third analyst did that. Um, and, and he said, um, it's a loose quote, but pretty much that he feels it's an honor to do this work and he chooses to do it. Um, which is helpful, you know. I think in my second analysis, my analyst was a self-proclaimed workaholic. So it becomes a little mixed because you also know that the work is, you're being a patient to help them through a hard time, (laughs) you know. So it gets very murky, um, you know, and, and so it becomes a patient might be taking care of an analyst by staying in treatment, by talking about themselves, like, but I think, I think when my third analyst said that, I knew it to be true. You know, I really knew how much he valued doing his work and it does, it did free me, but it's never out of, you know, the illness is never out of range. You never stop noticing or thinking about it while, even if you're focusing on yourself, at least I didn't. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the um, the head of our institute uh, uh, got very sick very quickly, and she was very open about it. Um, and I, I told her on our call, we I was in a group class where there where she was teaching the technique of group and, and running it, but it was uh, both didactic and experiential. And um, and she's wasting away uh, and talking about denial and seeing and and she was. I'm, brilliant. And, uh, she said, what's, what's the denial here? What are people not seeing here? And people like poking around, whatever, and being as we were candidates, very, very analytical and theoretical. And she just looked and she says, I'm dying. Yeah. And, and she, that's just how that's part of character, how she was. Um, that's helpful. It was very helpful. <laughs> it was very helpful. helpful. And in fact, the last time I spoke to her, her name was Dr. Meadow. I said, hi, Dr. Meadow. I said, how you doing? She's like, my mind? Terrific. My body's dying. I mean, she was really just right out there. And um, yeah, that was amazing. But the denial piece, um, whether it's the denial, you don't see it, don't want to know as the analyst or me as the patient. Um, you also, uh, in the book, I was not shocked. I'm like, oh yeah, the pragmatic. You talk about analysts who don't want to let anybody know what's happening because they need to keep working. They need the money coming in. They don't want to lose referrals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard about that as well. Um, They don't want anybody to, they they don't want it to get around the community because then people won't send people to them. They might, they might live for several years. Who knows? They need to work. Um, So it can ruin a business and a business is what supports them. I mean, I said this to you 
and not many people know this, but I've the part of the reason I've never fully become an analyst is I I and it was unconscious. I don't I didn't realize it until very recently that I never wanted to have to support myself through analysis in case I had to stop one day. <laughs> like I never wanted to have to work. I always made my money in a different way. It also allows me to work with, you know, low fee patients, but I think I never wanted to be in that position. Um, and so I never did it uh, because I think that's, you know, that's really, it makes it impossible to put your patients first uh, if, if you can't afford to tell them the truth. Uh, it brings a whole other dynamic into the treatment room. Um, yeah, which I don't, I don't, you know, again, there, there are realities and so I, there's no magic answers how to deal with that. No, there's a, and that's, so that's a, a sort of a good place for us to, to, to finish here that through the, the essays, the memoirs, the stories, and on the one hand, not surprisingly, um, it's, it's individual, it's case by case basis, um, on how it's handled and where they are developmentally in you. And, and it, it, there's so much that's custom made each time. And yet the wonderful um, thing where people have this, the shared metaphor of Mount St. Helens or when, when, when the analysands talk, the shared uh, images, feelings, mine, um, you know, where I got together with all of my you know, siblings and found out we all had the exact same experience. Um, I know that when an analyst at our institute dies, we have a, a final a group and, and we'll just come and sit and talk. And it is frequently true when people say share their experience, um, either as supervisees or in class with a person or as a patient, they say, well, you know, he always said this. And everybody laughs and said, yeah, he said that to us too. And when you find oh, out so that nice. you thought it was a custom-made, you thought it was a custom-made intervention for you, you're like, oh, no, that was one of his techniques. It's humbling. Um, <laughs> it's, it's very it's humbling. humbling. <laughs> then you, It's humbling, but now you're like, oh, I have the opportunity to feel understood by somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when, um, you know, my mother died this past April and, um, you know, I can, there's certain things that I can sit with my daughter and say, Oh, Omi would have, Omi said that, you know, Omi is called Omi. Um, and to have that for an analyst must be so healing, um, that, you know, it becomes, uh, it, because the, it becomes a real person. You can mourn, not just this, private, transferential, supposedly only object. Um, it's a real reality loss of a person you love, you know? Yeah. Uh, I have a feeling we could just keep talking about this for the rest of our lives. Um, <laughs> anything else um, that I might have missed in the book that you'd like to share before we finish up? Um, I don't know. I mean, when I was thinking about the anything else, I was thinking about... about about why you know how an analyst the loss of an analyst is a loss on so many levels because you lose so many different things like you know I too wasn't able to say goodbye to the office which which was really hard because I came to life in that office all of the different pieces of me took form in that office and I felt very much like when my analyst died, 
all of the little me's that came to life in there were like still flying around and they never got to fly back into me uh, so that they were part of me. It was a very strange feeling. Um, you know, so many patients lost, you know, all the transferential relationships, the mother, the father, the ghosts of their past. They, they lost an office, they lost a safe space, they lost a mental, you know, there's so many things that the analyst is um, to a patient that uh, I don't think there's any other relationship in the world, not to say that everyone doesn't play multiple roles, but none quite like an analyst <laughs> where there's such a multitude of losses um, at once. Uh, so anyway, that was just because you asked me that when we were chatting the other day, and that's, that's the only thing that came to mind about something that seems just significant to me that that it's such a multitude of losses with one person. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I have this fantasy that one day I'll rent that office and work there. Mm. It's midtown. It's very expensive. It's too sweet. I don't think I will, <laughs> but I, 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 I still want to go back in there sometime. Yeah. One of the patients in the book got to say goodbye to the office. I was so envious when I read her. Chapter. Yes. 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 <laughs> It's very envious, but I do hope, you know, I, I, I know, you know, through everything we talked about, I really do hope, you know, maybe once COVID isn't, uh, you know, hope for that too, taking precedence in this way that, you know, communities, uh, analytic communities continue to develop and see the real impact, you know, that their illnesses and deaths have on their patients and not only the candidates, you know, just patients who have no support, how they can be helped, how we can deal with it in advance, how people aren't just left alone with no one to catch them and hold them. If, you know, if that could happen, it would just be such a wonderful transition and that it doesn't go underground again, because these things come out, they're talked about when someone dies, and then it goes away for it to stay in our own consciousness, you know, at workshops or, you know, conferences, anything you know, so that there can be real lasting change. Yeah. Well, well, the book, I mean, I think will will help to do that because it is searchable. And then hopefully uh, this podcast will as well to keep it front and center. And I'll, I'll and I will um, do the work at my Institute. Uh, thank you so much for joining well, us thank today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you. I mean, I know part of it is born from your own experience, but I appreciate your interest in it and in the topic. Um, because that's how change will happen. So thank you so that's much. It. Absolutely. So uh, for our listeners, we've been talking to Claudia Halbrun. Her book is What Happens When the Analyst Dies, Unexpected Terminations in Psychoanalysis. Claudia, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.